Well, today we're talking about heroes. And as people, as humans, we love heroes. We love to celebrate the accomplishments of great men and women. When I talk about heroes today, I, I'm not going for some fancy definition. I'm just talking about someone who did or achieved something special that you want to celebrate. That's a hero. It could be an athlete. For me, as many of you know, I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, so I think of that. I think of a couple years ago where a backup quarterback, Nick Foles, came in at the end of the season, won a couple playoff games, and then outdueled the greatest quarterback of all time in the Super Bowl. And as an Eagles fan, that, I felt, was very heroic. Maybe a political leader you think of as a hero. You could think of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who held the country together during the Civil War. Or George Washington, who was given multiple opportunities to hold on to power, take more power, but continued to give it away. Maybe when you think of a hero, you think of a faithful follower of Christ. Maybe someone from church history. I think of maybe uh, uh, John Huss, or in Czech it's Jan Hus. That's a, the bottom left is a picture I took of a statue of him in the city of Prague. Men like him and William Tyndale gave their lives. They died. They were killed in their belief that God's word should be in the language of the people. Or maybe you just think about somebody who made a personal difference in your own life. So my heroes are my parents who sacrificed so much for me and give great examples of perseverance even through the most difficult struggles in life. We may have many heroes that we think about or look up to. And there's nothing wrong with looking up to somebody, but for Christians, we should never let our fascination with people surpass our love for the Lord. Today, the book of Hebrews will remind us that Jesus is better than our heroes. If you make someone else your ultimate hero other than Jesus, I have to tell you, you will find yourself disappointed in the end. And if you make someone else your ultimate hero, you'll find yourself actually opposed to your Lord and Savior. And you can celebrate great achievements of a regular person, but we must be abundantly clear who our Savior is. So today we're going to look at what the book of Hebrews has to say about how Jesus is like some of our heroes we may want to celebrate. But he is better because he is the ultimate builder and he's the Son of God who's greater than any servant. Our passage will also challenge us to really consider Jesus and to cling to his house. With that being said, I encourage you, if you're not already there, to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Hebrews, chapter 3. Use the Bible in front of you. We'll also put the passage on the screen. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And once you're there, I'd ask that if you're able, you'd please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And then follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Hebrews, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for heroes, people we can look up to and celebrate. But most of all, God, thank you for your son, who may be like these other heroes, but is worthy of more glory because he is the great builder. And unlike mere servants, he is your son. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to consider him, to think deeply about him, and to cling to our part in his house, the people that he is building here for his mission and his glory. Lord, thank you that we are brought into your house not through our work, but through his. So God, may our focus be on him today so that truly he might increase in our glory and praise. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to review where we are in Scripture to kind of get our bearings. We're in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. This is a letter that was written to followers of Christ who were from a Jewish, a Hebrew background, but now they're worshiping Jesus. This unknown preacher is writing to them and has a message for them. His message is Jesus is better than your old way of life, than anything you might want to go back to or something new you might want to do. Jesus is better. And that's been our focus in this series, this kind of comparison, celebrating what is better. I always try to think of an example of this. The example that comes to mind this week is on Friday, I, I was privileged to go to a high school football game where my high school, Central Dauphin East High School, proved that they were better than Central Dauphin High School by winning that game. At, at least for this year. At least for this year. Last time, we talked about this idea of better by saying how Jesus is a better brother because he suffered to save his family. And he actually died to defeat death itself. And he's also a better brother because now he helps his people. You remember we talked about how he doesn't help angels, but he helps us, those who know him. But now in chapter 3, we get to a big shift in the book of Hebrews. Chapters 1 and 2, he's been spending a lot of time talking about how Jesus is better than angels. Don't think about angels, think about Jesus. But now the focus shifts to Moses and to the Mosaic law, God's rules, God's commands that he gave to Moses. And this is an important shift because the author is writing to Hebrews. They would have spent most of their lives before they knew Jesus, learning about, trying to follow Moses' law, the first five books of the Bible. And if they liked talking about angels, oh, they loved Moses. Other writings outside of Scripture tell us that many Jews at the time, they considered Moses to be the best person who ever lived. 
And the author wants them to know very clearly that Jesus is better than Moses. And he wants us to know that Jesus is better than any hero we may hold dear. He starts this by challenging them to consider how Jesus is like our heroes. First, he does a bit of comparison. Consider how Jesus is like our heroes. He's directly addressing his audience, believers in Jesus, and he's challenging them to act, to consider how Jesus is like our heroes. Let's read verses 1 through 2 again. The author says, Therefore, holy brothers or holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The passage begins with that great word, therefore, that we always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, if you remember last week, we talked about how Jesus is our brother, yes, but he's also a priest. He represents us before God. He stands between us and God. And the author tells us, therefore, since he stands between us, we should consider, we should dwell on him. Because we are holy. We have been set apart. We are brothers and sisters called to an eternity of life with God. We belong to him. We talked about that last week, how in Jesus we are his brothers and sisters. And he's done something to us. He's made us holy. He's made us as righteous and good as he is in God's sight. He's rescued us. And even though we still sin, when God looks at us, he sees his son. And so now there's a heavenly calling in which we share. We partake of it together. If we are a believer in Jesus, these true believers share the same eternal destiny. The roads of our life may look a little different, one person compared to another, but if we have a relationship with Jesus, we are on the road to the same destination. We share an eternal future. So what what should we do if that's true? If if we've been set apart by Jesus, if we share in this future, what are we called to do? Well, that's where he says consider, meditate, think carefully about. Fix your eyes and your thoughts on Jesus. That means that if we're a believer, a follower of God, our worldview, how we think about life, how we process our decisions should be focused and centered on Jesus Christ. Not on what feels right to us. Oh, I think this feels right. Not on what our political preference is. Oh, well, my person I like says I need to believe this. No, our focus needs to be not on what others say, but on who Jesus is and on what he has done. The text is also conveying that focusing on Jesus is how we persevere through the trials of life. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is better than giving up. And who is this person that we're considering and thinking about? Who is this Jesus? Well, the author tells us two things about him. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's our apostle and our high priest. An apostle is a word we don't use very much, but it just means one who is a sent messenger, a sent messenger with authority. And Jesus is our apostle because he was the one sent to us with a message, and we should listen to him. 
In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, as the Father has made me an apostle, even so I am sending you. So he's our apostle, but as we also discussed last week, and we'll discuss a lot more in the book of Hebrews, he's also our high priest, the one who represents us before God. He represents our confession, the good news that we believe about Jesus, the good news of the gospel, what we acknowledge to be true. And that's the good news that he was sent to save us. He was also sent to give us the message of salvation, that we would know how we could be saved and know God. One pastor I heard preach a sermon on this passage kind of described it as Jesus is doing two things. As an apostle, he is speaking. And as our high priest, he is sacrificing for us. He speaks and he sacrifices. As an apostle, Jesus comes to us from God. And as our high priest, he goes from us to God for us to represent us. That's why many... uh, evangelistic tracks have you ever seen one or the little evangel cubes that we that we hand out at events they present jesus as a bridge that's a really great image there because he's coming from god to us he's also making a way for us to god he's our bridge it's a great metaphor because it goes both ways our passage here tells us about this jesus this great apostle and high priest that he has fulfilled the role that god gave him just as moses fulfilled his role they were both did what they were appointed to do. What Moses did, he was faithful. He led God's people out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness. And know what the author's doing here. He's not tearing down Moses. He's saying, don't think about Moses. Don't talk about what he did. No, he's praising him. He's acknowledging Moses is worthy of respect. He was faithful to God. Some of the language here seems to be borrowed from the Old Testament itself. The book of Numbers tells us this. This is God speaking, and God says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, it's I, the Lord, who make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. He beholds, he sees the form of the Lord. And so why are you? were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God himself says Moses is worthy of great respect because he is faithful to the Lord. Any other hero from Christian history we can think of is also worthy of respect in their faithfulness to God. But the author doesn't stop there. He'll go on into verse 3 to say, If Moses was faithful and worthy of respect, then Jesus is worthy of even more respect. Because Jesus fulfilled God's plan. He was faithful to it. He did what God set out for him. He came to earth. He was born as a human. He lived a perfect life without sin and failure. He died to pay the way for us to know God. And he rose to new life that he can give us. Moses as great as he was, was just a man. Jesus is a man, but he's also fully God. The author is acknowledging Moses did great things, but Jesus did better things. I like how one scholar, George Guthrie, put it. He says Moses plays an important role, but only 
as his faithfulness sheds light on the greater role of the Son of God. What Moses did was special, but what he did shows us even more. Jesus did even better things than that. The point for us is we can have other heroes. There can be people we admire. We can learn a lot from them. We can learn from them about perseverance, about courage in the face of opposition. We can learn the importance of integrity, of faithfulness in what we set out to do. But no sinful human example can be our ultimate model. We can learn stories of even other characters in the Bible or heroes from church history, faithful believers. And these stories are immensely beneficial. They're wonderful to look at, such an encouragement. But we don't follow them. I don't follow David. I I don't follow a pastor from church history. We follow Christ. We could talk about people who weren't necessarily Christians, but other heroes of history, and we can learn lessons from their life. They can teach us discipline and purpose. And such a life of discipline and purpose would honor the Lord. But our focus, our primary focus, is to be on Jesus. Look, if you've been here for a while, you know that I really love quoting the British pastor Charles Spurgeon. I I really appreciate his preaching. I value his ministry. I think he has a wonderful God-centered, Christ-centered focus in what he does. But Spurgeon is only useful in, as he points my attention to Christ. He's, he's not Jesus. He's not even close. I'm not even going to quote him today because the purpose is not talking about our heroes, not focusing on them, but on Jesus Christ. So it's not wrong to value what someone has done, but if we think about someone, this person is my hero. I really respect and value that person. We should take the next step to ask ourselves, what is it that I see in that person that reminds me of Jesus. What does my hero tell me about the character of my Lord and Savior? If we ask that question, then we're making sure our primary hero is Jesus Christ. He deserves to be that hero because as the author tells us next in the text, Jesus is the builder. He is the ultimate builder. That makes him superior to Moses. Jesus the builder. Listen to verses 3 and 4 again. They say, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is worthy of greater glory. He deserves it. However you want to count worth or stack up who should get praise and honor, Jesus is worthy of more. The Apostle Paul would write about this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He talks about the ministry of death. The ministry of death. Here he's talking about the Old Testament uh, law and system of relating to God. If that was carved in letters of stone, talking about the Ten Commandments. And if that, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, even though that would be brought to an end. It says, will not the ministry of the Spirit, what Jesus does, will not that have even more glory? And why does what Jesus does have more glory? Well, it's because the builder of a house should have greater honor and praise than the house itself. That's what our author says. 
Jesus is that builder. He's the best builder there is. Bob the builder cannot compare to Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the author states a clear conviction that God's the ultimate builder of all things. He's implying very strongly that Jesus is God. Jesus and God are the ones who built what we see. We may have a question about that. We may wonder, but what is it that Jesus is building here? How is he a builder or an architect? And there's probably at least two ways we can think about that. On the one hand, Jesus was involved in the act of creation. He built the things that God has created. As our text says in verse 4, the builder of all things is God. Jesus was a part of that. We saw this at the very first verses of this book, way back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read there about how long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And here it is, through whom also he created the world. Through Jesus, God created the world. We talked about that when we were looking at those verses. I said Jesus didn't pop into existence at the first Christmas. He always existed. He was involved in creation from the beginning. So that's how Jesus is a builder. He's created what we see. But the second way is probably more the focus of the author here. He's probably focusing on the fact that Jesus builds, he creates, he forms, he saves God's people, God's house. There's a language of house throughout this passage. And his point is Moses was a part of God's house. Moses is a part of God's people. But Jesus is the one who brings God's people into a saving relationship, a right relationship with him. So in reality, Jesus is better than Moses because he created Moses. He was involved in creation, but also he saved Moses. He made Moses a part of God's people. And this is the building that God's doing in the world. He's doing something. He's drawing people to him, building this group of people. We call it the church, people that know God, people that follow his son, Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what God's doing. He is in charge of building his people, his family, his kingdom. And he doesn't need our suggestions on how to do that. He doesn't need our heroes or celebrities. Oh, I wish this person would become a Christian. Amen. Pray for that. But God has his own purpose and plan that will not fail. That doesn't mean we sit back and we ask God to do things while we kick up our feet. No, the elders at this church, the staff, I know many of the members here, we work very hard to build Christ church, his kingdom right here in our community. But we must always remember God is the ultimate builder. In any success, he gets the glory. And he gets the praise. And that drives right into the main reason why the author believes Jesus is better than Moses or better than any of our heroes. And that main reason is because a son is greater than a servant. Jesus is better than Moses because a son is greater than a servant. Let's look again at verses 5 and the first part of verse 6. It says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ 
is faithful over God's house as a son. As a son. We've talked last week how Jesus is our faithful high priest who represents us, but not only that, he's faithful because he is God's son. That makes him the ultimate example of faithfulness. I hope you see the logic here. It's not very difficult to follow. The author is saying that being a son is better than being someone's servant. A son gets to sit with the father and spend time with the family. A servant only comes to serve the meal or to serve the owner's purposes. Jesus has a privileged place in the household. Moses is only a servant in God's house. Now by calling Moses a servant, he may be quoting that passage from Numbers we read earlier, but this is common in the Old Testament. It's said repeatedly that Moses was God's servant. Look at these two passages. In the book of Exodus, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The people feared, they worshipped the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant, Moses. It's a title he's often given. In the book of Psalms, the author says of God that he sent Moses his servant and his brother Aaron, whom he had chosen. This idea of servant conveys someone who has a lower condition, who's serving, working for their master. But even though it says that lower state, it doesn't mean that Moses was upset about this. It was a privilege for him to serve God. It's a privilege to serve someone great. The author is celebrating what Moses has done. He's saying Moses is an illustration of what faithfulness to God looks like. And while the author doesn't bring it out, the truth is, Moses did serve faithfully, but he was not perfect. He sinned against God. He had his share of failures, of falling. But his life points to a perfect leader still to come. His life points to a perfect leader. In, in addition, Moses did more than just by the example of his life point to Jesus, but he explicitly testified, he bore witness that Christ would come. God told Moses, and he wrote, in the book of Deuteronomy, this prophecy, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses faithfully served God and the people of his house. But the household needed someone greater. They needed a savior. They needed the son. And that's who Jesus is. Verse 6 tells us Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He is God's son, the one who will inherit the house. No other hero you could think of can say the same thing. There is only one son of God. Probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible is John 3.16. tells us God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. He gave his only son. Jesus is the son who is over God's house. He has all that God has. He is over all of his people. He is in charge of it all. The author of Hebrews is making the point, the one in charge, the owner, is more important than those who work for him. The owner is more important than those who work for him. Let, let me give you a Silly example, if you were able to go to the fictional city of Gotham and you got an invitation to go to Wayne Manor to meet Batman, 
Bruce Wayne. Well, that would be great. You go there, you show up at the door, you ring the doorbell, and who shows up there? It's his butler, Alfred. And that's pretty cool because Alfred does a lot to help Batman. That, that's neat. It would be cool to meet Alfred. But you're not there to see Alfred. You're there to see Batman. You're there to see the owner of the house. He's the one you're looking to see. He's the, the much cooler, the better one to meet. This scholar Al Mohler says, to say that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house is to say that he was a servant among God's people. Christ, however, is the Savior of God's people. He's the Savior, the one who is better. Okay, so Jesus is better, but, but so what? What are we supposed to do with that, knowing that Christ is the one who's better and who's better than our heroes? Well, the application we take home is, therefore, we should consider Jesus and we should cling to his house. We should consider Jesus and cling to his house. I'm going to read verse 1 and then part of the last part of verse 6 again. Verse 1 said, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And then the last part of verse 6 says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, we cling to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the very beginning and the very end of our passage. These bookends remind us how we can get very easily distracted. We can focus on our own desires or on our own lesser heroes. And instead, we need to consider Jesus, keep our eyes and attention on him. How do we do that? Well, we get to know him. We spend time in his word, learn who he is. We get to know him through prayer, through talking to him. We get to know him as we live like him, as we do obey what he has said. And why should we do that? Well, verse 6 tells us we are his house, his people. If we know him, we are a part of the church where God's presence abides on earth. In Ephesians 2, we were here before, but this is a longer passage. Paul writes about what the church is. He says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. This house has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure, the whole house is being joined together. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And in Christ, in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God where he dwells by the Spirit. The church is what God is building. The church is where God's people belong. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You can try but the church is where God's presence lives. And I would encourage you, if you hadn't done so, to connect with a local representation of God's church. If you want to know more about what that's like here, I'm teaching Discovering Church membership today. And so I have some people doing that, learning about what it looks like here. But I encourage you to do that. Be connected to God's church. As Paul would write in 1 Timothy, he's talking about, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And what is the household of God? It, which is the church of the living God. It's a pillar, a buttress, 
of the truth. We, both the, the Hebrews and us, we need this reminder. We need this house because we are constantly tempted to drift away. The very last words of our passage tell us this. They say, we are his house if indeed we hold fast, we cling to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This verse transitions into a new section of the book of Hebrews, a long section we will be in for the next few weeks that is full of warnings, warning us to hold fast, hold firm, hold on to faith in Christ, keep a tight grip. We need to cling to our confidence that Jesus alone saves. We need to courageously trust him over our sin. We are to only boast or rejoice or give glory to the eternal hope that we have in him. We're not to boast in what we do. We're to base our confidence on Christ's work on our behalf. This holding on to Christ, this is a common theme in the book of Hebrews. Next week, one verse we should be looking at is verse 14 in chapter 3. It says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, I read the verse like this a few weeks ago, and, and it can be a little confusing looking at it. What exactly is the author saying? Well, he's simply saying that believers in Jesus Christ are called to persevere to the end of their lives. They're called to persevere. Now, to be clear, our salvation from God is the result of God's grace and His grace alone. It's not something we work for. It's not something we earn. It's a gift of God. We don't earn our way into heaven and we don't earn our way to keep our place there. But scripture and this book, the book of Hebrews in particular, is full of warnings to hold on to that faith. It's not just Hebrews that says this. Jesus himself used these words. In the book of Matthew, he talks about what will happen to those who know him. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures, who perseveres to the end, will be saved. It is only those who persevere and endure to the end who will be saved. But all true believers in Christ persevere. They keep going. They stay in the faith. They stay committed to Christ. Our author here talks about it's our confidence. It's our, it's our boast. Staying with Christ, persevering, gives us assurance. Living for God shows us, yes, I am on my way to God. But on the other hand, failing. We fail to persevere. Well, it shows us that we have no reason to believe that we are saved. Again, George Guthrie said, the author cannot give unqualified assurance to those who were drifting away from Christ and the church. Now, it's not our role to judge. God alone knows the heart. But if someone is not living for the Lord, then we have no evidence that they are a Christian. They may claim to know God. They may have at, at one time acted that way. But if they are not now, then there is no evidence. There is no assurance. Now, the wrong response to that is to look at people and say, does that person actually know Jesus? Let me look at their life and see if I figure out, what about this person? What about that person? That would be a wrong response. The right response would be to pray fervently for those we know who at one time professed faith but have now 
appear to have fallen and drifted away. A better response would be to examine ourselves and look at our own hearts. Book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Here in our passage, the author's point is that those who know they are in God's household have assurance. They have confidence in their eternal hope. They can face the future without fear because they know they are a part of God's house. Again, Al Mohler, he talks about this. That what we're talking about is this idea of doctrine, this teaching that of the perseverance of the saints, that followers of Christ will persevere, they'll continue in the faith. And that does not mean we enter God's kingdom by faith and we stay in God's kingdom by works, what we do. Instead, it means that we enter God's kingdom by a faith that will persevere and never fail. That's how we come to know God, by a faith that will persevere and never fail. The only faith that saves is a faith that perseveres. Now we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. The next large chunk of Hebrews is about it. But for now, let's go back to thinking about our heroes. What does this have to do with our heroes? Well, I just want us to see this idea of drifting away that's here, of not holding fast to this confidence. What is it that they're doing that causes them to drift away, to not hold fast to their assurance in Christ? It's that they're valuing Moses over Jesus. They're valuing another person, their hero, as more important than Jesus Christ. That's what the drifting away is. It's not that they're in some outward sin, this terrible thing that they're doing. No, what's wrong is they have a wrong focus. They're looking at a wrong Savior. The application to us is what the title of our sermon is. Jesus is better than our heroes. If our number one hero is anyone but Jesus, then we are on a path away from God. If your favorite athlete thrills your heart more than Christ does, then do you love Jesus? Do you know him? If you talk more about your favorite politician than you do about Jesus, you're revealing something about your heart. Perhaps a heart that values the power of man more than the power of God. Jesus and his word should dictate our decisions. We shouldn't let anyone go above him. These lesser heroes we have can lead us astray. If we value someone more than Jesus, we can find ourselves doing things, thinking thoughts that are far from Christ's example and his word. I don't care how cool you think your hero is, but if they speak and act against God's word, that is not a person to follow. Remember, Way back in verse 1, if we know Christ, we are holy. We have been set apart. We share in a heavenly calling. Jesus is better than our earthly heroes. But let me ask, is he your hero? Do you know him at all? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Is he someone you talk to and know? The way to have a relationship with him is to put your sin, your rebellion, behind you. These other heroes who you may admire but say they are nothing compared to you, Jesus Christ. To put sin behind you, turn from it and place your faith, your trust, your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. To know him. If you haven't done that, I, I pray, I beg of you to, 
talk to someone about that. At least talk to God, if not talk to me or someone else. How can I know Jesus Christ? How can I turn from my sin? How can I trust him? I pray that you will do that so that you can join his people together in worshiping him because he alone is worthy of worship and praise.